Hello, everyone, and welcome to Always Choose Orange. So this week, now that it's we're a couple weeks into the new year, I wanted to reflect back on some of my favorite books that I read throughout 2023. So of of the books that I'm going to be talking about, none of them are actually came out in 2023. Um, but I read quite a few books this year and just thought it would be cool to share some recommendations. And I have my brother Andrew with me, who's also going to share um, some of his favorite reads from uh, 2023. And we have six questions that we're going to go back and forth answering different sort of ways that we enjoyed books. And we're going to talk about what we enjoyed about them, uh, maybe give a little details of what the books are about, and just kind of explore what comes up. So I think the best place for us to start is talking about just so you know, everybody listening knows where we're coming from. Um, we'll start off by sharing a little bit about what type of books we enjoy um, and what kind of stuff we read. So um, I, I can kick that off first. So I tend to enjoy a lot of fantasy books. So Andrew and I both grew up reading a lot of fantasy. Um, that's kind of like definitely my first love when it comes to reading. But I also enjoy a lot of, uh, I guess you would call it literary fiction, a little bit of sci-fi. Um, I love books on religion and spirituality. I love some history, reading about like the context of like ancient Judaism, archaeology, sociology, um, kind of anything like that, personal development books, psychology, kind of all over the map. Um, not a huge reader of like romance or Western. Um, haven't really touched on those genres. So that's kind of where I'm coming from. But yeah, Andrew, go ahead and, and give us yours. Yeah. So I've, I, I read a lot of different genres, but I definitely have my favorites. Um, fantasy being the main one, but I read different genres for different things. So when I'm trying to, if there's someone particularly that I'm drawn to as like a flesh and blood human being or the things that they've accomplished in the world, I'll try and find an autobiography about them. And I like, autobiographies more than I like biographies mainly because the auto is the way that they viewed themselves and I find that fascinating um but with fantasy probably that's definitely the genre that I read the most of and that I'm enjoy the most uh I've also read a lot of uh kind of inspirational some self-help and then um, a lot of catholic uh, mystics those are probably like my favorite stuff that I've read that's awesome. And and also one thing that I forgot to mention at the beginning, between the two of us, we read a couple hundred books in 2023. So these ones that we're about to talk about are ones that really impacted us kind of on a deep level and, and stood out amongst the sea of stuff that we read. So let's start with, um, I think a cool question for us to start with is what is the most ambitious book you read this year? And by ambitious, I didn't really clarify this Andrew when I sent the question to you but by ambitious I mean like people really experimenting with either form or content or someone that took it kind of just far out so yeah I'm curious what you put down for that one yeah I'll answer that in two ways so the book itself was Rhythm of War by Brandon Sanderson I it was a mess trying to get it from the library I think I had to wait like two months because there was Two, three, there was three copies at the libraries in the in the library system, and then there was like thirty people in line 
And then one of the books disappeared. So there's only two books. So after like three months, I get the book and I'm like, all right, I have 17 days to finish like 1400 pages and full-time job, hobbies, sleep, all those things. And so I didn't finish it in 17 days, wasn't able to renew it because of all the people in line, had to wait another two months and then I got it and then I finished it. So that was the most like ambitious time-wise, but ambitious as just a piece of work that I had to approach was the Stormlight Archive, books one through four. Just the scope of his world is the largest world I've ever seen in a fantasy genre, like in the fantasy genre. Um, even bigger than like Raymond Feist's Midchemia, bigger than Dragonlance's Kryn, like bigger than my own stuff, Corn's Hat, Sunilin. Like it's the biggest world that encompasses so many different planets and magic styles. And yeah, that was hands down the most ambitious book for sure in series. Yeah, I read that at the end of 2022 and i mean we've had a lot of phone calls about this but it man yeah it I, that definitely if i would have read that in 2023 i probably would have picked that because it's just the sheer scope is mind-boggling and the different character viewpoints and having like his interlude sections and yeah when you told me you told me even before i checked out the first one you were like give it 200 pages. Like don't give up, give it 200 pages. And I think for me, it was like, once I hit like 250, I was like, all right, I'm starting to understand how to read this book. Like I'm getting it. Yeah. Yeah. Dude, that's something that we always talk about. And I talk about with a bunch of people too, was like, there has to be a buffer period to figure out how to read the book. Because especially when you're going from like in reading as much as like we have, like, you're going from style to style to style and it can be so stark if you don't give yourself a second to be like, wait a second. Okay. This is not the same, the same type of book as the last thing I read. Do you, how do you approach that? Like when you go into a new fantasy book or series, do you like, I'm thinking of what I want to start doing, but do you like read the, the description on the back cover? Do you look at the table of contents? Do you look at the map? Do you flip through how the chap, like how do you, or is it just you read it? Like how do you approach a new world? Like what does that look like? Yeah, like as in what draws me to the book in the first place or once I know what I'm going to read, what do I do? Yeah, once you know what you're going to read, how do you introduce yourself to the style, to the world? Like, yeah. yeah. Um. I just pick it up and go. Um, I generally skip over maps until they start talking about the places. And the moment I'm I'm sort of find myself wondering where everything's taking place, then I might pop the bookmark in and flip back and sort of explore. I was just doing a re a reread of Name of the Wind. And um <laughs> yeah, it, well, we were both doing a reread of December, Name of the Wind. You have to read it in December next to the fire. Every time it's my fourth December <laughs> name of the wind. And I never really paid attention to the map the first three times I read it. And so this time I found myself wondering where 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 does all this take place? And what was really cool was I actually read the first 
chapter of it at Barnes and Noble. I was reading that I think the 10th anniversary edition, which is gorgeous. It's like 50 bucks, but it's this giant hardcover and it has a like a map that's like twice as good as the normal name of the wind map. And so that was kind of fun. Like it had a lot more of the cities on there. But to answer your question, no, I just I just start reading it and um I, I really do make myself read it for depending on how thick the book is if it's something like stormlight archive like i wanted to quit reading that book so bad between like i really liked the prologue and i liked the opening scene and then the world building was just so massive that by page 200 250 i really really wanted to i was so tempted to quit reading it and then i was like no this is so big i need to give it more than i would give a normal book and again super glad that i did but I don't give most books that long. Like I read, um, oh man, what was it called? The Fifth Season by N.K. Jemisin, which is really, you know, acclaimed. A lot of people really love that book. I read 199 pages of it and was just like, nope, I am not continuing on with this. So yeah, I guess I just, I just go for it. What about you? With fantasy, I go for it. Like if someone's recommended it, like if you've recommended the series or if a friend has recommended the series, I'll just go for it. Like I read name, uh, what was it called? Eye of the World. And I mean, that that's like a 1200 page book and it was horrible. Like I did not, this might get some haters, but like it was so bad that I didn't even read book two, except the last chapter of Eye of the World was actually good, which was a little bit like confusing but no with fantasy i'll just go for it but with um with nonfiction, whether like spiritual nonfiction or like history nonfiction, i've started to read the endorsements on the back and like who they're from like who has read these books what are they saying about it and then i'll read the little summary on the back I might read on the flaps if it's a hardback, whatever. And then I really have been looking at the table of contents. Like, how do they organize the book? What is the structure? Is it all written by one person? Is it a collection of essays? Like, how is this organized? And that's typically what I'll look at when I'm buying new books that I've never heard of at thrift stores. I'll, like, look through all of those things and be like, all right, is this a book that I am drawn into? Um, Cause I typically am one of those dudes who like, once I start reading, I'm not going to stop it. I'm going to finish even if I don't like it. That was, that was huge for me when I, when I sort of gave myself permission to quit reading a book, I was the same. I finished so many books that I did not like. And then one day it just kind of clicked. Like nobody's making me finish this book. It was I haven't got there yet. I haven't got there yet. There's one well, book I'm in the middle of that I might not finish, but we'll see. And I'm not necessarily saying that's a good thing or I'm not making a value judgment about it. But for me, it was very liberating to be like, it's still kind of hard though, because there is still that impulse of I started this. I want to see it through. Um, it, it just takes quite a bit for me not to finish. Well, it's like if you stopped reading the Gospels when Jesus died and you like didn't read the resurrection. It's like, well, you you missed you missed it. Like we're you done. Keep reading. Pack them up, boys. Pack them up, boys. <laughs> didn't read it. Well, that's disheartening. It's like you like that's like what it's like for me. It's like I didn't finish the story. Like yeah, I didn't get resolved or not resolve if it's an open ended. But yeah, okay. So before we move on from most ambitious rhythm of war. For anybody listening, that is part four of the Stormlight Archive by Brandon Sanderson. Um, 
all four of them are extremely ambitious. Uh, the whole the whole series as a whole, he's plotted it out to be ten books, two series of five, um, epic fantasy, multiple viewpoints. Um, what makes it so ambitious is it's not necessarily his prose, and it, it it's more of like the scope of the story and the way he structures chapters, and he does um. This doesn't spoil anything, but the prologues of each of the uh, first four that are released are all the same event from a different perspective. And what did you think of that, by the way? Yeah, yeah. I liked it. And I also, like, I felt cheated a little bit where I was like, man, like, oh, if I would have known that, like, like cheated but then also like the rereadability of stormlight i think is really high like yeah when you get to know what happened in the prologue you start to think oh you get like a fuller schemata of like when you read the prologue in book one you're like oh this is the complexity of what was happening like i do like that like the idea of the rereadability yeah yeah i have not yet to reread it i I started rereading way of kings which is book one and i got to about page like 200, 250, and was just like, I would like to read other things. But for anybody debating whether to dive into the Stormlight Archive, um, Andrew and I have made this joke many times. I've also made this joke with other people who've read the series. After reading um, specifically a Stormlight book, every other book is so easy to get yep. through because it's not 1,200 pages of super epic fantasy. Even Name of the Wind or some of the bigger fantasy books um, Game of Thrones, they all seem super easy to read after reading some of those giant Sanderson doorstoppers. Um, but you can build a house out of those, dude. That's what you right, man. I put them on the end of my weightlifting. Oh, yeah, yeah. That video is coming out later. Coming out later. Get them. Um, so yeah, to answer, did you have anything else on Rhythm of War before we jump? Well, no, I was cur- no, I was curious what the most ambitious was that you wrote or that yeah. you wrote. Um, this was awesome. So the most ambitious book that I read this year, looking at ambitious in terms of like scope of what the author was trying to pull off, it's called Ella Minnow P by Mark Dunn. The subtitle is A Novel in Letters, which, okay, a couple things about this book. I discovered it on Pinterest, actually. So I was building, I have a wish list on Pinterest of all the books that I'm looking, that I'm interested in owning. Um, and on the main page of Pinterest, it has like recommended pins. This book popped up and I thought the cover was really cool. Um, it has a picture of Ella, the main character, and then a minnow and then, um, a peapod, um, which is like the name Ella minnow P, which I did not get for the longest time until I finished the book that Ella minnow P is L M N O P. And I felt so silly because that's like the whole the whole reason she's named that. And then the a novel in letters being the subtitle, it's an epistolary novel, so it's written in letters. And then it's about the alphabet, so that's like a double entendre. Um, on wait, the- written written in letters as in like like she's writing a like a letter, yes. written letter to someone. Oh yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. So, um. I found it, I saw it on Pinterest and then I went and checked it out from the library, read it, 
was astounded and I'll explain why I was astounded in just a second. And then I found it at the thrift store for a uh, dollar and, and picked up this copy. Um, but what it's about. So Ella Minnow P is a girl who lives, I'm kind of reading off the back cover, but I'm summarizing in my own words. She lives in this fictional Island called Nollip, which is off the coast of South Carolina. So that Island is made up, but um, Nollip is named after Nevin Nollip. Who's, I don't know. I didn't fact check this. I don't know if this was a real person or not but in the lore of the book nevin nollip made up the phrase the quick brown fox jumps over the lazy dog which is um a sentence that contains every letter of the english alphabet and wow. so basically what happens is like ellen and her family are on this island and the island has this council that um rules over this island because they're like autonomous from the u.s government and um what happens is the council one day, one of the, there's a statue of Nevin Nollip, like above the council building. And it has the sentence, the quick brown fox jumps over the lazy dog. And one of the letters falls off the statue and the council takes it as like an omen from the gods that they can't use that letter in, the, in any verbal or written correspondence anymore. And so what happened, and I'm looking up right now, it was Z. The first one is Z. So Z gets banned from the alphabet and then these characters, the whole story is told through the characters corresponding through written letters. And um, once the letter is banned from the alphabet, they don't use it in the actual letter. So Mark Dunn, who wrote the book, writes all these letters with, he wrote like, so once Z is banned, he doesn't use Z for the rest of the book. And then wow. once like in more and more letters keep falling off the statue and basically the council starts going super authoritarian and they're like banning all these people from saying and like you get three strikes. And if you if you say the letter three times, you get booted off the island forever, like exiled. Um, and so all these people are trying not to like accidentally say the letter. And it's like super easy at the beginning because Z falls off first. But by the end, um, different like when the vowels start falling off, like it gets absolutely nuts. So by the end um i think the actually i think the only vowel that falls off is u but once u falls off um the letters are so hard to read because they have to start spelling words wrong in order to not get arrested for using um <laughs> to not get arrested for using the inappropriate letter so it's it's when i heard the premise i was like how is this is this is really cool but it's not going to work as a story it's surprisingly moving and a good story for the form. So that was just mad ambitious. I still don't know how he did it. When he went near the end, when he was writing the letters without a lot of the letters of the alphabet, did he keep the first and last letter of the word the same? Ooh, that's a good question. Let me, I have it right in front of me. Let me flip through. Um, the reason I'm asking that is because there's, that's basically a psychological trick that if you know the, the like the English language, you can mess up any order of the middle part of the word. But as long as you have the first and last letter and then yeah. the correct letters in the middle, but in any order, you can read it like a, you can read sentences. Oh, interesting. He yeah, kind of. Um, there are situations where like he doesn't do that. So like I just opened it up to page 193. So yeah. half the alphabet is banned and this is near the end because he doesn't get to where the whole alphabet's banned because you couldn't even write a functional book at that point. Um, but most of the alphabet 
is banned. And um, it says like letter to me only and only spelled O-N-L-E-E 24 and they spell hours O-W-E-R-S hours remain storm tiles plop eight tiles plump plump all in one night night spelled N-I-T-E T end is near because they can't D's banned. So instead of saying the end is near, it's T E E E N T is near. So long a because they can't use G. So it's so long. Anyways, that's like a taste of like what the prose is sort of devolves to at the end is like the whole thing kind of crumbles. Oh, and the 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 bet they make in the middle of the book is if they find another sentence that compare that has all twenty six letters in it, the council will lift the ban. And so they're trying to like figure it out without saying the actual. I wonder how many sentences there are that 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 can do that. Uh, he pop. There's uh. Well, I don't want to give the spoiler. Okay. Yeah. There, yeah. You I, tell me. Tell me after this. Yeah. 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 Um. It was wild. It was really really cool. Um. I've never read anything like it. It's very avant garde. Yeah. It's very that's like a really ambitious too like I, I like just like the fact that we're both writers the, like how you would come up like how we how, like first where did the idea come from and then the execution like i want to know how long it took how many drafts you did how many people you had looking at it like seriously so i would yeah. love to have him on the podcast although he wrote this like 20 years ago i think i think he, let me see when this came out i'll flip through into the table of contents i think this came out in like 2000 or something um 2001 yeah so it's been it's been a it's been a minute um yeah i don't know i have no clue i have no clue how you would execute something like that especially in 2001 because i don't think the technology um in like word processing was at the level it is now right i hadn't even thought about that that makes sense though oh yeah sweet so yeah, let's move on to the second question. Um, let's do which book did you read in 2023 that surprised you the most? And however you interpret surprised. Yeah. Hmm. Do you want to go first? Or you want me to go first? Go for it. Yeah, if you're willing. Yeah. So it's a book called Once and Future by A.R. Capetta and Corey McCarthy it definitely surprised me so first it was one of the i think it was the third ever sci-fi book i've ever read besides dune and uh hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy after i read this one i ended up reading ender's game so i've read four sci-fi now but this one once in future was a queer retelling of the king arthur story and i haven't read much like modern books or even any like lgbtq books and so at first it was very kind of strange it was like huh like this is like the characters are different than what i've read before like the emphases are different the humor is different and like the relationships are different and as i kept reading it, it i got more familiar with it and it was it was kind of playful it was playful and fun so it surprised it surprised me that i liked it um, just because I'd never read it before. I hadn't hadn't been familiar with that. Um, trying to think what else surprised me about it. I like without, well, okay, no, I can't. I don't, it'd be a spoiler, but there's a really cool, so the King Arthur story has Merlin, you know, and then Arthur. 
Um, but in this retelling, uh, Arthur is a woman. And there's some really fun stuff with Merlin that I found really funny. Okay. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, do you find that yourself growing more fond of sci-fi? Yes, but I think only because of the ones that I've read. Oh, I, and I have read Dune Messiah, and I did not like Dune Messiah. I thought it was way too political and, like, weird. Uh, Dune was amazing. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy was amazing. Ender's Game was beautiful, but I'd seen the movie, so I kind of knew the twist. But I like fantasy more, but sci-fi is interesting. It feels more, like, heady and, like, more intellectual. It kind of feels like there's, like, let's explore what would happen if we lived on the moon and had like a universal government. Like it feels more like that where it's like, here's the thing. Let's explain that. Whereas fantasy feels more about the story, kind of like the hero's journey, which I like a lot. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, my, the book that surprised me the most was a graphic novel adaptation of Anne of Green Gables um, which I have never read the original one so it's um, a 1908 novel I just pulled it up to double, to make sure I didn't say it wrong uh, Lucy Maud Montgomery wrote it in 1908 very famous classic book Anne of Green Gables I have not read it um, I'm actually I've always been interested in reading it um, but I was at the library I was on a huge graphic novel kick probably a bender is a better word <laughs> dude when you cruise through dbz that was a bender dude i read 27 volumes of the dragon ball z manga in one week and i just like had no life um and i saw um the Anne of green gable so i let me backtrack for a second actually i started by reading a graphic novel adaptation of the secret garden um, which is another classic book, I think from around the same time. I did not look up when Secret Garden was published, but I think it was around the beginning of the 1900s also. I read um, Mariah Marsden um, was the uh, author's name who like adapted the story. And then um, she had other illustrators um, or another illustrator with her. I can't remember who did the Secret Garden one. Um but I really liked the Secret Garden one. It was really cool. It was a cool experience to because I probably wouldn't have sat down and read the novel anytime soon. But um, graphic novels for me have like a low barrier of entry. Like it's kind of the opposite of what we were talking about earlier with a Stormlight Archive, where it's like a high barrier to entry. Like you have to invest in twelve hundred pages. I know if I'm reading a graphic novel, um, it's going to take me about an hour, maybe two hours. Um, so I'm willing to I'm willing to experiment more with things I might not normally like read the secret garden thought that mariah marsden's uh adaptation of it was really good and i saw next to it at the library when i was i think it was when i was returning it or a little bit later that she also did an Anne of green gables adaptation with a different artist and so i said well i really enjoyed the secret garden i really like this sort of pure um wholesome outdoorsy early 1900s energy or late Victorian era. I don't know, kind of just the feel of it. I read um, Anne of Green Gables and I, it actually made me cry. Um, it actually, I teared up at one point and I can't remember. It's one of the only, it was the only book on this list, I think, or one of two on this list that um, we're going to be talking about tonight that I don't have next to me. So I don't remember what part made me cry, but I got really invested 
and emotional about it. And I think it's because I have, at the time I had two daughters. Now I have three daughters. Um, but just something about her character and having daughters and seeing all of this like girl kind of grow up and what she goes through. It was, it was really pure and beautiful. And it did make me really curious about what the actual novel is like. So that one surprised me the most by far. I had no clue I was going to like it as much as I did, but it was great. Yeah. How was the, um, I don't, it's not animation. The, like the, um, the drawings, like yeah. what, do you call, what do you call that? Like, they were cool. Um, they were okay. Yeah. That's a good question. They were like halfway between a cartoon and realism. So it didn't look as cartoony as something. I'm trying to think of a good example. Like it wasn't as cartoony as like bluey or courage, the cowardly. It wasn't like that level of cartoony. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of what, it, but it wasn't like anime style either. So I, 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 it's not like Miyazaki level. Um, I'd say it's different style stylistically than what Miyazaki does, but I think it's like that same level of like realism. So it was kind of maybe a little bit set below. Um, so kind of that, that level of, of drawing, but the colors were really cool. Um, I don't have it in front of me. It's been a while since I read it. I think it was colored digitally. So some people, when they do graphic novels, do like watercolor and stuff like that. I believe this looked like it was done digitally. Not positive. Don't quote me on that. But no, it was cool. It was cool. And the art was the art was great. Um, it was really well drawn, well illustrated, well written. Um, it. But what really moved me about it was the combination of the story and the art. Some graphic novels, the art is just absolutely jaw-dropping and it floors you, but the story might not be super good. So the art kind of carries it. And then other ones, the story's really good, but the art's, you know, not not super quality. This was like right in the middle, which I like. So it was it was the story mixed with the visuals. Dang, dude, you're inspiring me now. I want to read that. It's it's cool. I haven't, I haven't read many graphic novels. Um but I've always wanted to read Anne of Green Gables and that seems more accessible if I just want to like read it real quick, see some like. Yeah, there are really good. Um, I mean, there are also really bad ones, but there are really good graphic novel adaptations of classic novels. So like the secret garden one that I was telling you about really good. Anne of Green Gables really good. There what? there's a lot of graphic novel adaptations of Beowulf, but oh, yeah. I read one and um there's a lot of different adaptations but this one was like this giant red cover and it was done by ooh, it's been a while i think um the gentlemen who worked on it were from either spain or south america um they had sort of like latin sounding names if i remember right that version of beowulf was crazy i've never read beowulf and so it was really cool to see the story that way um there was another one I did. I read um, of someone adapted The Handmaid's Tale um, oh, yeah. by Margaret Atwood, who's just Margaret Atwood. Margaret Atwood is an incredible, incredible author. And someone adapted The Handmaid's Tale and it's gorgeous. Um, so those were the adaptations. If you're trying to do adaptations that I've read that were really good. Yeah. Oh, that sounds awesome. Um, okay, yes, yeah, so we both did surprise. Let's see. I'm looking at the list of questions. Let's see where we should go from here. Okay. Um, which one 
which book that you read in 2023 was your personal favorite? So not anything specific, but just the one that you feel, yeah, this, if I had to pick one book, this was my favorite of 2023. Yeah, that was, so there, there, there's another question that you're going to ask, which is which book impacted your life the most? And so these two questions, I actually changed the answers back and forth a bunch of times. Yeah. They're, they're pretty interwoven and they were read directly after each other. But to answer the personal favorite one, it was a book called Breath, The New Science of a Lost Art by James Nestor. He... I guess he calls himself a pulmonaut, which is like a fancy way of saying like he's into breathing. Um, but he combines research with like experience, like personal research with scientific research, with journalism, with really well organized chapters, um, really well thought out topics and just explores the history of breathing from different perspectives and from different cultures. Um, I loved it. Like as someone who used to struggle with a lot of anxiety and found a lot of kind of healing and freedom through um, a breathing practice called the physiological sigh, which was kind of, I don't know if it was created by Andrew Huberman, but it was, he promotes it. Um, and so having used that as a practice for about two years, I was curious what the science is behind breath and kind of what that looks like. So yeah, love that book. Definitely going to be reading it again. Hands down my favorite from 2023. Yeah. How did you find it again? Because you told me about it and I found it at, you know how libraries have those like books that you donate 50 cents to buy or a yes. dollar to buy. I think I found it outside of, a, of the Lake Forest Park uh, library, <laughs> either there or yeah, I think I found it there and it was like a dollar. And I was like, dude, I've been looking for this book. Like, no way. I was so stoked when I found it. Oh, you'd actually been looking for that specific book? Well, yeah, I'd, I'd heard of it. My my colleague um, with the company I work for, Drew, he mentioned it to me one time. I was like, dude, this book, I think you'd like this book. And I kind of like filed it away, but then forgot about it. And then when I saw it, was like, ah, this was the one I'm supposed to read. So I read it and loved it. Absolutely loved it. Thought it was amazing. And yeah, it's, it's phenomenal. So I, you told me to read it and the way you were talking about it inspired me to read it. So I actually put that for the question that we'll do next, which is which book impacted your life the most. So we might as well just both talk about this book probably at the same, at the same time. Um, what? Yeah. We had so many conversations about it. What, what really, man. Yeah. What really made it your, what made it your favorite? I think I liked, it, it, I like books that are, I like journalism books. Like when there's a topic, like an overarching topic, and then the author is writing about science or neuroscience and uses personal experience because that, that, that exists within all the chapters but then also finds experts in the field for each chapter. But what made it my favorite was the chapter on, um, I guess, like the five second breath. And 
or yeah, the the five second breath. I think it was the five second breath where it was saying that in America we we breathe we do eighteen breaths per minute, mm. and how that's like ridiculously high and leads to a lot of like unhelpful like just anxiety, and that how all of the spiritual traditions like Hinduism, uh, Buddhism, uh, Catholicism with the Rosary, um, Christianity, different Judaism, they all had different prayer or meditative practices. And they found that when you engage those practices, it organizes your breath to be five breaths per minute, which is significantly lower. And that I just, what, what blew my mind was that every tradition did that. And those traditions were instituted by different people in different times and different geographic locations. And yet that was one thing that bound us all together. And I really liked that. Man. Yeah. That part was, there were so many parts of that book. So like, not only was it a chain reaction of epiphanies about breath and all these different science and all these sort of lost things, but it's also, like you said, it's like journalism, but Okay, so there's this thing that I don't like in those kind of journalism books where um, where they'll try to tell a personal story, but it feels like they're just telling a personal story because they're supposed to tell a personal story to make you like engage. Um, and even though I really like the book that I'm about to bring this up about, this is an example of what I would contrast it to, like the, the Four Hour Work Week by Tim Ferriss, Tim Ferriss's first book. Um, really amazing book, Real, a lot of great information and all that stuff in it. But he does that. He does that thing in that book where he'll start the chapter with like a short story, but it's super kind of clunky moving in and out of the story. And it feels like, I guess, contrived, like it feels forced. And James Nestor just effortlessly is moving in and out of his own experience with going to talk to these experts, to history the breathing practices and and he's hilarious and his the prose was phenomenal there was a part where he was talking about someone uh he used the phrase brown bagging a tall boy beer um and i had never heard somebody use brown bagging as a um like a was that a verb i guess yeah a verb um and it was like a throwaway line when they're like riding their bikes through um, the Golden Gate uh, Park in San Francisco and he uses that. And there's all, like there's another part where they go through like the catacombs and for, like Paris, underneath Paris. And then, yeah, it, it, uh, it just blew my mind. I took like a page or two of notes and I started paying attention to my breathing for like two weeks after that without trying. Like I just was constantly being like, how am I breathing? Um, so that's why I put it as like, uh, I, I enjoyed it, but for me, um, it, the reason it wasn't my favorite is because it, and I chose it for impacted was because of how wildly practical it is and how much the breath kind of unlocks a bunch of other stuff. Like he also talks about like chewing in your mouth and like how your teeth fit, like that part was crazy. And then how all of this breath science is found in these ancient like sutras and the holy texts from like the Indus River Valley from like 3000 BC. That what do you think of that stuff? That was that blew my mind. Well, I mean, that's just crazy. I mean, that's just amazing, right? Like it, it, it's it's like how I make sense of it is that that a lot of the the non-Western religious traditions are focused on ways in which you can improve your life here on earth 
Like, how mm. can you be more grounded? How can you be more loving? How can you be more focused? How can you be more productive? How can you be a better member of society, right? Like, they're talking about, like, do these practices and it will change, basically, your consciousness. Like, and I think that that's something, like, for me, coming from a Christian tradition, like, was essentially taught, like, those, like, there's nothing good in those traditions. And, and or they're just all about, the human person or, or being, or like, it's all about just being human. It's, it's humanistic. And I used to hear that as a bad thing because that was how people phrased it. But now I think like, oh no, they're very human. And that's actually a good thing. Like we are having this human experience and, and these, while I don't think that every practice in every religious tradition is specifically tailored and beneficial for the specific person, I think that find one that works. Like for me, like the, the physiological side, like that is a, came out of the neuroscientific community, but that works for me. Whereas it might not work for somebody else who needs something that's more energizing or something like maybe the Wim Hof, which I'll go into, because that was one of the books that I chose for something else. But like what that does, that wasn't as beneficial for me than it would have been for somebody else. So I think that's what's cool about those religious traditions specifically like the hindu sutras and 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 stuff like that yeah no that's awesome so yeah i guess that's the first one that we both have put on the list in different spots so if you're looking for one to read that might be that might be the one um before we move on from breath anything else that you think we missed uh, with that book the breath book um i like at the very end he does like an epilogue where he summarizes each chapter oh yeah so if, like so if you don't know if you're interested but like the idea of breath sounds cool like read the conclusion at the end enter the summaries and see like okay this is like a entry point into the bigger scope of the book and if you feel like led to led to, or feel like drawn to it then uh that could be a good place to start that's a really good point. Like I, even though there is a connecting narrative, which is like his experience of learning about his breath, you could also jump in at any chapter that interested you and still find value in it with little, with little missing of context. The context is cool because it connects it all, but I, yeah, I think that's, what's interesting about it is it has this compelling narrative of him going on this journey to discover his breath and at the end you feel like he went kind of full circle but he learned all this stuff at the same time um it's i'm trying to think of how to articulate it at the same time you can jump in at any chapter and get some value yeah it's like it's like it's well done in such a way that like there was a book i read this year that that was a collection of essays underneath one topic but it was really poorly organized and did not feel co cohesive at all it was called uh um origins of early christianity ad 30 to ad 600 and it was a collection of essays and some of it was interesting but it was very like not cohesive um each essay maybe took place in that time frame but it didn't there was no like it didn't feel connected. And so I think with the breath book, he does like what Alex was saying, like it, it like did a really good job um, of doing that. I mean, it was one person who wrote it. So it's probably I mean, it's right. easier to have it connected, but. Right. But he could have just done like a straightforward book. Like 
the fact that he chose to do it framed by his own experience, I thought was really cool. Um, Cause I've heard it said before that like, there are a lot of entry points. I've heard people talk about this in the, in the context of public speaking, where when you're about to give a talk, um, looking at what is your relationship to the thing you're about to give a talk on. So are you an authority on it? Are you just learning it? Um, what was it like for you when you first learned this information? And so I think, I wonder if that kind of informed his decision to do that was like him, not necessarily, I, I don't remember what his, I think he's a journalist, right? He wasn't like yeah, a breath yeah. expert. Yeah. Not and, a breath expert. No, he's not a breath expert. He's just a journalist who is fascinated by breath. Yeah. So I thought that that was a, a wise decision um, to make his authority from, this is the experience. These are all the experts I talked to. This is all the stuff I tried. This is all like the science. Um, I think that was a smart move. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, that's uh, a great way to put it. So since, yeah, we kind of jumped b- b- between the two questions, but because that was the one that impacted my life the most, and that was your personal favorite. My personal favorite was um, Arthur, The Seeing Stone, uh, which is okay. book one of the Arthur trilogy by Kevin Crossley Holland. So I actually read this book. Let's see. It came out in 2000 um i probably read this shortly after that so um when we went to to elementary school we had the scholastic book fair once or twice a year and our mom would always like you remember like mom would always buy us books and really encouraged our reading and this book was one of the ones at the scholastic book fair and i remember buying this so gosh i probably read it if it came out in 2000, I doubt I got it brand new because I didn't have the hardback. So I probably read this in like 2001, 2002. So that would put me at, that would have been like 10 or 11 years old. At the latest, I might have read it in 2003, but I think it was 2002. Um, And I, I liked it back then. I thought it was really good. Um, it's It was not like... Other things I was reading at that time, I was really into like the Redwall books and kind of that full on sort of fantasy flavor. And the Seeing Stone is crazy because it's like a retelling of the King Arthur story in a way. But it's this kid named Arthur who is living, I think it's like 500 years after the real King Arthur was like allegedly the king. And so Arthur, the boy, finds or uh, he's given the seeing stone by Merlin at uh, this sort of manner. I don't know what the proper term they use. It's been a little bit since I, since I read this again. At their, I think it's their manor. And Arthur, Arthur de Caldecott, that's the main name. He is 13 and he lives on this manor. And Merlin, and he really wants to be a knight to go on the crusades because that's like happening at this time, one of the crusades. And Merlin, who's like friends with his dad, gives him this seeing stone. It's like this black obsidian. And what, every time he like looks at it in private, it gives him a vision of the real King Arthur. And wow. so it's the real King Arthur myths, like from the real King Arthur stories embedded inside of Arthur de Caldecott's life in the present. And the what I think made this book my favorite is it's like a fusion of everything I love about writing. So the prose is fantastic. Um, 
it's accessible. Like I read this at 12, I think, like we were saying 11, 12, somewhere in there. It worked at that age. And I read it at 32 and it still worked. And so like, it's one of those like timeless books that it's, it's just, you can hit it at any age and still get something from it. I didn't get some of the stuff as a kid, but it's not like blatant things. Um, so not only is the prose good, um, it has short chapters, which I'm very fond of. So the book actually has 100 chapters in it. Um, and it's about, let me look, like 349, 350 pages, um, 100 chapters. So the average chapter length is like, what does that put it at? Like 2.5? Yeah. 3.5, yeah. And so it's got short chapters, good prose, a good story, um, got a little bit of humor in it. Um, it made me cry. It moved me deeply. It's uplifting while still being real. It was just, man, I'm, it was really cool rereading it. And I reread the whole trilogy. Book two was equally, equally great, maybe a tiny bit less good. And then book three, still great. Um, the landing, the, the ending was good. Um, but book three, I would say was like the weakest of the three, but yeah, I don't know that, that I have to say that was my favorite. There was some close runner ups. There was some stiff competition, but Arthur, the seeing stone, Arthur the seeing stone. So it sounds like it worked on like, it, it, it hit you emotionally. It hit you like organizationally, like, yeah. was it? Because I read it too back back when, so okay. when you read it, I must have read it like two years later. So I was probably like, I was probably like ten or eleven as well. Yeah, I remember never reading book two or book three, but I remember reading that book and I read it and I think I pretended to understand it or liked it because I knew it was it was in your shelf. I remember when I like yeah, I owned it. You owned it and it was in your it was in your room. I remember at the at the the the, the second house we lived in. I would go in your room randomly and I don't remember you might remember, but I I'd just go in your room and look at your bookshelf. Do you remember that? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And I used to do the same thing because we had different, you know, we had a bunch of books, but they were all separated into our rooms. Yeah. Cause I'd always see like, what was Alex reading? I remember the Shannara series was one that was always in Alex's room, but, but I remember seeing the seeing stone and I was like, huh, I've, I've read every other book that Alex has, but not, the seeing stone so i read it is it a so it's a frame is it a fr is it a first person frame story um yeah that's a good question i it's not it's weird kind of it is in first person which i also i should have mentioned that first person i right. love that it's in first person that's what makes yeah. it super powerful um yeah. it's actually in yeah first person past tense it looks like yep um it's it's I wouldn't technically call it a frame just because even though the Arthur myths are embedded in it, they're kind of more held like within the story um, itself. So I personally wouldn't call it a frame, but yeah, kind of, it kind of is because you also do follow the arc of the real King Arthur. And the second one was called the iron ring. The second one was at the crossing places. Crossing. I have that one too. I own the first two, and the third one I don't own yet, but I do would love to own the the whole trilogy. I actually had to listen to the audiobook because they didn't have it at my library. Um, the last one is called King of the Middle March. 
King of the Middlemarch. What am I and thinking of? Iron, oh, I'm one. thinking of the Iron Ring by Lloyd Alexander. Yeah. Okay. I've never read that. But no, this book was this book was great. So that was that was my favorite. So since I already touched on what book impacted my life the most, what was your answer for that question? Yeah. So it was it's it's called the Wim Hof Method: Activate Your Full Human Potential by the Iceman Wim Hof. Super impactful. Like I had just finished. I would call it the most inspiring period of 2023 in terms of book reading it was five kind of like autobiography type deals it was uh what's it called the how to do the work by the holistic psychologist breath by james nestor uh defy the odds by david goggins Yes. And then Wim Hof. So there's like four. There might have been a fifth one somewhere in there, but but the Wim Hof was the fourth one. And I remember reading it in the way that he talked about his method, which is essentially this form of breathing that takes about 11 minutes. It's three rounds of breathing. Um, and then after that, it's followed by like a 90 second cold shower or like deep cold plunge. And then the third pillar of his method is, I think what he calls like, confidence or faith or like the focusing of the mind where it's like basically believing that something is possible and like using faith as like a way to control kind of your human reality and so i was just super inspired by the way he talked about it like it was really it was it was seemed to be grounded in science it was grounded in his experience and then um, near the end, he added a little bit more of kind of his spirituality. Um, but it was so inspiring that I was like, you know what, I'm just going to do it for 10 days. Mm-hmm. Ended up doing it for 15 days, uh, the breathing, and then I stopped the breathing. And then I did the cold showers, I think for like 32 days and just recently stopped. Yeah. Um, but it, de- I mean, it definitely does what he says. I mean, like, for somebody who maybe is like hypo aroused, meaning like low energy, fatigued, or like, in a parasympathetic state where they're like really chill and really relaxed and they don't feel like they have energy. I feel like, well, I feel based on my experience, the Wim Hof method would be really beneficial for somebody like that. Um, but for somebody who's already like revving the engine, like high energy, you're going to overload your system. Um, cause the breathing is increasing cortisol, which is the stress hormone and adrenaline, which is can lead to anxiety and stuff like that. So um definitely try it if you're interested in like seeing what it what it what it does um but it's fascinating yeah i love i love that book that's cool that you read it paired with um breath too because we had it flipped so you read breath first right and then you read the wim hof method yeah i had read the wim hof method a year or two ago and then practiced the method on and off since then um and so i knew like uh, Wim talks about, like you said, some of the science and then just kind of his experience and stuff. And I knew from my own personal experience, like how good it felt to do. But it was really interesting to see it from James Nestor and the other people's perspective also, because it was talking about how, um, like you were just saying, it kind of simu- simulates stress um, purposefully so that... Um, but it doesn't like it doesn't it's not as harmful because you're purposely causing it's not harmful because it's purposely causing the stress and then your body calms down 
at a deeper level after it. So I found that super interesting. And I might've got a tiny bit of the science wrong, but essentially what it does is you're purposely overloading yourself so that your body, it has positive effects after What's it. What's the name of that type of stress? There's a word for it. It's something. Eustress? Was it eustress? Well, eustress is good stress. Yeah. Oh. It's the ancient Greek, like you good stress, but there, it was like, started with a C like car off. I'll have to look it up, but it's like car something or con or some sort of like, stress that that is beneficial because you're consciously entering into it yeah, yeah. so that was fascinating um sure. no that's cool dude that's that's great it's yeah it's well that was a book that you gave me you were like you were getting rid of books and you're like and yeah you, you sent me pictures and i was like that sounds interesting like i had tried the breathing like one time and then had a panic attack or something because it was just not the time for it um so i tried it like i think in 2020 so four years ago and then now i was like let's try it again and i had a much different experience because uh, yeah. i knew what to expect like i knew oh my entire body is tingling like i almost feel like i'm gonna pass out like that's supposed to happen and i was like okay like now that i know that that's fine <laughs> the yeah the first time i did it i i did know that so it helped but i was like what in the world like the it just feels cr absolutely unlike anything yeah, it's wild. Um, but yeah, I love the book. I thought it was, I thought Wim's passion really comes through. Like, I think that's what impacted me the most was Wim. Because I, while I was reading it, I was watching YouTube shorts. I was watching his videos. Like, I was seeing him on Instagram reels. And I think what impacted me was him as a person. Yeah. That's what impacted me. Yeah. His, yeah, his presence as a person is just like, it's awesome to see it is yeah it's really cool that's yeah. cool okay i think um the next logical spot since we're talking about like impact is we have two more questions um is what's one book that made you cry um you go you 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 answer that one first and then i'll i have to do a slight change of that question in order to answer it but yeah for me um I, I cried from a handful of books in 2023 um, but the one that I cried the most was a graphic novel, Blankets, by Craig Thompson. Um, it is a beast of a graphic novel. It is awesome. Basically, what made me cry about it was, um, and why it hit me so hard with such an, like, an emotional catharsis, um, was the book is about a guy who is um, in high school. And he's like um, trying his best to be perfect. So he's Christian and he um, is trying to do everything right and trying to follow like all the rules. But he sees it as like a thing. It's like, I got to follow all these rules. And he goes to church camp or youth camp or whatever. I forgot what you call it, like summer camp. I think it's the winter one, actually. And he meets this girl. And then they sort of fall in love. And then he goes over his winter break across, I can't remember what state he lives in. I don't remember if it was like he lived in like Illinois and they go to Wisconsin, somewhere in the Midwest. And he travels like, or like to Michigan. I don't remember exactly um, what state to say, but he crosses over the state lines. One of the states is Wisconsin, I think. And um, it's like snowing and all this stuff. And he goes to stay at her house. And she's like um, trying to hold, her family's kind of falling apart. Like I think her parents are getting divorced 
and um, she has like siblings that she's trying to take care of in the midst of that. So her family's kind of like falling apart and he, um, you know, like falls in, it's like the first, the kind of like first deep crush, that kind of story. Um, and like the sort of like coming of age, falling, first falling in love, like that, that type of thing. Um, but it's really fascinating because it talks about like, um, he kind of, the author sort of contrasts and compares the obsession someone um, sometimes has with like religion to the obsession that you can have with another person um, when you're infatuated um, slash and you kind of don't really know you can't kind of really tell like is it like real deep sacrificial love or is it like really deep passionate infatuation like it kind of at certain points you can kind of argue for either one um but then basically, um, I mean, I don't know how to talk about how it impacted me without kind of doing spoilers. Basically, like, that, it, it kind of all starts falling apart. Like, he basically feels like he has to choose between um, his faith and, like, love. And he chooses love, but then he feels a lot of guilt. And then it's kind of like him working through that. And there was just a lot of parallels um, with things I went through at certain areas in my life. So it hit me super hard to see. And the way he resolved it was different at the very end, was different than what my experience led me to. But I can sit there and hold it and feel why that character chose to respond that way. I mean, I'm being vague because I don't want to spoil it for people um, reading it. But yeah, it was it was really emotional. It was really emotional. And I probably read... The last 300 pages which is a lot of pages um because this was not a graphic novel you can finish in an hour this was like a couple hour read it's thick um beautiful art i could not stop like the immersion level at the end it was it was high it felt like that feeling when you're a kid and you just like are fully in the book like i got that yes i miss those feelings like when you're reading raymond feist and you know i just want to get back to the thomas section or the pug section you know yeah or like or like when you're a kid, you're like, one more chapter, one more chapter. And then you're just hoping the chapter's long or whatever, you know. Do you still get that feeling ever? I don't. I don't. I do get the, I, I just for the sake of like my routine, when I read before bed, I read one chapter. Unless I'm like super awake, then I'll just read a ton. Um, but no, I don't have the same immersion that I used to. Gotcha. But I'm noticing things that I didn't notice then. Like back then it was just in the story. Whereas now it's like I'm paying attention to prose and organization and like story and, and all of that. But but hearing you talk about blankets, like even just not giving any spoilers like that, that experience of have, feeling like you have to choose between faith or love, like that's something that I've experienced, you know, like, and then especially having people in your life um who also have the faith who don't understand like if you do choose love they don't understand or they they're scared or something like that you know and it's like not only do you feel guilt of quote-unquote leaving the faith but you also feel the guilt of like letting down those other people like your peers who maybe haven't done that or maybe haven't understood so i'm connecting to that right now as you're describing that yeah it's it's a deep, it's a deep read. It was really, really good. It's like, it's so good that it's hard to imagine. I'm sure I'll read it again at some point, but it's one of those that's just like, yes, I was supposed to read that 
at that time to process that thing. It will forever be one of my favorite things. Also, whoa, I don't have any desire to read that again anytime soon just because of that. Um, which happens to be with music every once in a while too, where like an album will really resonate for a set period of time. And then it's just like that I'm done. I can't listen to that anymore. Um, but it's beautiful still. And I still love it. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So I know you said um, that you were going to kind of reframe the question. So yeah, I'm super curious to hear about your emotional reading experience. Yeah. So this is, this is going to be another shout out to Brandon Sanderson, but I don't, and this is something I've talked out, talked to you about is, is that I don't typically like express emotion when I read books. That's not what I'm paying attention to. Um, I think things that do make me a little bit more expressive emotionally, they have to be nonfiction as opposed to fantasy. Um, but words of radiance by Brandon Sanderson, book two of the stormlight archive, I felt anger and I don't typically feel that like viscerally. And when I'm talking about like, like I've been sad when I read books, but like to cry is like elevating that sadness or it's like a heightened this anger. Like I literally had to put the bookmark in the book and like stand up and be like, I don't want to read this again. Like I want, I don't want to read this. I don't like this. Like I'm angry. And I won't give away too much, but there's a character in Stormlight named Kaladin. He's one of the perspectives uh, that Sanderson writes from. And Kaladin just, oh man, just life just keeps kicking him in the balls. Like he's just getting hit after hit after hit. And I think there's definitely some inspiration to be had because like he doesn't give up. Um, well, we'll see. We'll see. But, but what got me angry was just how, like how specifically the, like Kaladin does something good and then someone else takes credit for it. Who's in a position of power and then punishes Kaladin for like no reason just to make it so he can't talk about the good that he did. And like, what that made me feel in the moment was like those feelings you get, I guess maybe when you're a kid and you feel like you, someone's making a decision for you or like maybe a parent or like a friend who's older and you feel like you have no say in your action. And it's like, you're being manipulated or controlled and like lied to and then like shamed. It just made me feel so angry uh, to the point where I had to stop reading it, stand up and like move around. And then I came back to it and was like, all right, but it was mad. It was so maddening. That part, there's a lot, man, that whole arc, like there's so many parts where it just takes you all over the place. Like you're down, you're going down, you're going further, you go up a tiny bit, then you go down. And then at the very end, when you think it couldn't suck anymore, it like starts going right. And then when it starts going right, you find out the thing that you just said, it, oh man. So bad, so bad. So that one, I may have cried once in 2023 while reading, but I don't remember when it was. It was somewhere in the like first three months, but yeah. might have been when I was reading poetry, but I'm not positive. Okay. Yeah. Um. Then the last question is, which book, in your opinion, 
had the best prose of all the books that you read. So like the way that the words and sentences sounded, what would you say? I wonder if we have the same one. I wonder if we have the same one, but uh, we've talked about it already tonight, but the name of the wind by Patrick Rothfuss. Yeah. Beautiful. I like just, it's easy to read a book and have like one, maybe two critiques, or if it's a particularly not good story, maybe like five critiques, but to find a book that you have zero critiques where you're like, this is just perfect. Like, the prose is so seamless that you don't notice it. But then when you consciously look for it, you're like, oh yeah, this is smooth. But it's so smooth that you're just in the story. That was my experience every time I've read, well, I've only read it twice, but both times I read Name of the Wind was just, you're you're in it. Like, and even, even having grown as a reader yeah. to notice prose, I still didn't notice it because it was so smooth. And and that's what that's what I'm about when I'm looking for a fantasy book is, are you in the story? Does the writing take you out of the story or does, or does it kind of smoke screen itself and you're just in the story? Like that's, that's how I know I enjoyed the book. Yeah. And what I think makes Patrick Rothfuss's prose so good is that it's immersive and beautiful. Whereas yeah. like um, another author who I think has some of the best prose I've ever seen is Terry Pratchett who I would say is one of the best writers I've ever read and one of the worst authors I've ever read. Now I've only read like two of his books. So like I will give him more of a fair shot. Um, but the two books I read by him, the sentences, the turns of phrases, the wit, the humor, the the way he's phrasing stuff and making stuff up is incredible. And the writing is just great. And then at the end of Mike, there was like no point to that story. I felt absolutely nothing. Um <laughs> And so it was like prose, high quality prose at the cost of an immersive storyline. And specifically in Name of the Wind, like it's, it's, you're fully immersed. I think the first person helps a lot. Yeah. How yeah. Uh, Quoth is telling his story. Um, no, I, I, I would have put that on there, but I made a rule for myself that if it was a reread um, of, within a five-year period like if i had read that book within the last five years i didn't want to put it on there but i probably it would have been up there um yeah. that book has phenomenal phenomenal prose like the the yeah it, it's good we can do a whole we can do a whole podcast on that my answer for that question is i think it's a i got i can't pick one i'm gonna like talk about it probably three so okay. the three books that I read that had the best prose were are very different. So the first one is Christopher Moore's The Lust Lizard of Melancholy Cove, which is one Look of that the cover for a second. Like that cover is gorgeous. It's yeah. For those listening, The Lost Lizard of Melancholy Cove, the lime green cover. I recommend checking that out. Yeah, it's got like a sea monster popping uh, anti-anxiety meds on the front. Um, it's what it's <laughs> this book is so wild. I like Christopher Moore is a very wacky, zany writer. He's most famous for Lamb, which is the story of Jesus's 13th disciple, Biff, 
and it's the gospel according to Biff, and Biff is Jesus's best friend, and he's <laughs> going on adventures together in Jesus' childhood, and it's so funny. And um, the Lust Lizard of Melancholy Cove, the plot is about basically there's this company that's dumping toxic waste into the ocean and the toxic waste wakes up this giant colossal sea beast that's been sleeping. And one of the things that the sea beast does is make everyone's libido go up. So they become super like turned on. And at the same exact time, the sea beast wakes up, the town's psychiatrist stops placebo. She feels guilty about giving people antidepressants because there was somebody who committed suicide and she thought that it was from a side effect of the meds. And so she takes everybody off Prozac and all the antidepressants and starts giving them placebos. And so one of the side effects, uh, at least according to her in the book, is that your libido goes up when you get off antidepressants. I have no idea if that's actually true, but that's the mythology of the book. As a therapist, that is some depending on the person but that is that is something that is known about ssris yeah, yeah okay so they're totally riffing on that and and basically everybody in the town just is like super turned on and then the the big giant and this is still like in the first like 50 pages so it's not really giving anything away the sea beast comes out thinks a giant oil tanker is another sea beast tries to mate with it and blows up a gas station and then like after it blows up the gas station everyone's trying to figure out like what the heck is happening in the town because there's like all this crime and the main character is this like stoner police officer who's trying to like figure out what's going on and the prose is hilarious. There's like this one section that I actually just straight out want to read. Um, and it starts switching. This book switches uh, viewpoints and it'll tell you whose viewpoint is at the top. So Theo is the main character. And then his boss is a guy named Sheriff John Burton, who is his boss. He's kind of blackmailing Theo. He knows that Theo grows weed behind his house and he's a police officer. But he says, I'm not going to tell anybody but you have to do all this stuff for me. And um, so like Theo's keeps being blackmailed by his boss. But anyways, so there's a part where Theo is borrowing his friend's car and to go run to a spot where this giant sea beast is. And the dog is in the car and um, the guy's dog is in the car. And um, so that's like the context here. And the, the uh, sheriff is chasing him. So I'm going to read like one page to give a flavor of the prose. So Theo, the section is Theo. Why hadn't he let Skinner out at the cafe? So Skinner's the dog. He hadn't been able to figure out the electric seat adjustment on the Mercedes, so he was driving with his knees up around the wheel anyways. But now he had an 80-pound dog in his lap, and he had to whip his head from side to side to keep Burton's caddy in sight. The caddy made an abrupt turn off the highway, and it was all Theo could do to get the Mercedes around the corner without screeching the tires. By the time he could see around Skinner's head again, the caddy was stopped only 50 yards ahead. Theo ducked quickly under the passenger seat and tried to call on the force to steer as they passed the caddy. Then it switches to the sheriff. Sheriff John Burton was prepared for a confrontation with DEA agents. He was prepared for a high-speed escape. He was even prepared for a shootout with Mexican drug dealers if it came to that. He prided himself on being tough and adaptable and thought himself superior to other men because of his cool response to pressure. He was, however not prepared to see a Mercedes cruise by with a Labrador retriever at the wheel. 
His ubermensch arrogance shriveled as he stared gape-jawed at the passing Mercedes. It made an erratic turn at the next corner, bouncing off a curb before disappearing behind a hedge. He wasn't the sort of man who doubted his own perceptions. If he saw it, he saw it. So his mind dropped into politician mode to follow the experience. That right there, he said aloud, is why I will never support a bill to license dogs to drive. Still, political certainties weren't going to count for anything if he couldn't get to Betsy Butler and find out what had happened to the prize, his prized drug mule. He pulled a U-turn and headed back to the coast highway, where he found himself looking a little more closely than usual at the drivers of the oncoming car. That brings me back to reading uh, Lamb. His, <laughs> his style is so humorous. Like, the word choice that he uses, like, like I can't even, there was words that stuck out to me, but I can't, my working memory isn't remembering them, but there was, like, like erratic, like the word erratic, you know, like, that's yeah. not a word that that's like a special type of word that conjures a certain type of mood. Like there's a mood when you read Christopher Moore. Yeah. So that one is tied with uh Still Life with Woodpecker by Tom Robbins. Um which is I don't know how to explain. Um he he frames this this is a book from 1980 and um Tom Robbins has been quoted as saying that every book should make you laugh, make you feel something, make you horny, and make you in touch with the spiritual life force that holds together all things. And he's like, all of my books need to do all four things. And they do. <laughs> and um, he like frames this book by talking about this new typewriter that he's trying out. And so like he has these random interludes where it's like, he breaks the fourth wall and he's like talking to the reader as the author about writing this book on his typewriter. And then he like goes back into the story and starts using um, like uh, just, I don't even know. Like it's, it's, it's different than Christopher Moore because it's funny, but it's not like zany. It's more like um, hippie, spiritual hedonistic kind of all fused together um yeah it's and he'll start chapters like waxing poetic about something in history and you have no clue what it has to do with the and then he'll somehow tie it into the current action um and it's hilarious um, or he'll start talking about like a color for like a page or two and then that color and then he'll like tie that into like what the character is doing. So that book. And then the third one is The Penelope Ad by Margaret Atwood, which I would say has amazing prose in a completely different way than these two. These two I like because they they make me feel more alive and they make me laugh. Um, Margaret Atwood, it's just like literary prose. Like when you read like George Orwell or um who's the guy who wrote of mice and men? I know I need to know that. Oh dude. Stein Steinbeck? Steinbeck. Steinbeck. Steinbeck or Hemingway, like Margaret Atwood is like that level of prose. And the Penelope ad is the rewritten version of the Odyssey from Penelope's point of view. Oh, and no so way. it's like Penelope at the house with all when all the suitors are there, and it's written from her um voice and it kind of addresses like some feminism aspects and like um kind of takes on her point of view of the story 
it is beautiful. It's very poetic. It's very literary. It's very like um, stark is kind of one of the words. It's very simple, but like deep and simple, kind of like Hemingway. Um, yeah, Margaret Atwood, legit. Margaret Atwood, was she turn of the century, like 19th, like or, You know, uh, 20th? that's a good question. I think she wrote in the mid 1900s. I I think uh, she's still she's still alive, and I think she's still writing. She wrote um, *Handmaid's Tale*, which is yeah. really really um, sort of it's kind of in the same vein as like um, *1984*, *Brave New World*, that sort of like post-apocalyptic authoritarianism uh examination i um i've read a few pages of a handmaid's tale but i've read the whole graphic novel adaptation and it was beautiful but yeah margaret atwood beautiful prose um that is all the questions that we had i have one question if we can add it to the end yeah. i'm gonna put you on this i'm gonna put us on the spot yeah if so now that we're in 2024, what is one book that you're looking forward to reading that you haven't read yet Ooh. for 2024? Do you mind going first since I haven't thought of it? Let, let me think about it for a sec too, because I the, the question just came to mind. But Yeah, um, I'm trying to think. There, I do have a list of things that I'm really looking forward to reading. Um, so I, I guess I'll just talk of a couple, um, if you don't mind. Yeah. Um, I just started the first chapter of The Lies of Locke Lamora. Um, yeah. I think the author's name, I just learned about this series, so I might get the, I think his name is Steve Lynch. Um, I'm really excited to read that. I was really impressed with the um, prologue that I read, so I'm really excited to read that. Um, I think I'm going to read um, The Summer Tree by Guy Gabriel K. Um which is a fantasy novel and it's for the first book of the series, the Fionn Var Tapestry. Um, Brandon Sanderson recommended it. And he, actually I've told, we've talked about this before in a Reddit, uh, what are they called? AMA. Somebody asked Sanderson about some like authors that he likes. And he was talking about Guy Gabriel K and he was recommending the Fiona Var Tapestry and Tig I think Tigana or Tigrana. Um, and he was, he, he was like, man, this dude should have, I mean, he's good, and he's like, well, no, but he should have Brandon Sanderson level sales. And I just thought that was the he said it something like that. I might be getting the exact way he phrased it wrong, but I just thought that was straight up hilarious. But I'm really interested in reading that. Um, on the fantasy side, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. I think I'm gonna read. Have you heard of the Dandelion Dynasty by Ken Liu? L I U. Um, that's another more modern. I haven't read a lot of modern fantasy. I think you're in the same boat, right? Like we've read a lot of classic fantasy. Um, but I, I kind of want to read some more of the best modern fantasy. Um, so I kind of want to read the Dandelion Dynasty series by, I think it's pronounced Ken Liu. Um, Ken Liu, okay. Those, and then I'm trying to think if there's anything else that I'm super excited to read. Um, I might come back to it so we can jump to you. Yeah. So we, I mentioned Raymond Feist um, at, at one point, but uh, his Rift War saga, it was, I believe a 32 book series that I've read twice in my lifetime, which is just ridiculous, but it was the biggest inspiration for 
um, a two book series that I wrote that has yet to be published. I'm still working on the drafts, but basically he wrote those 32 books in the mid chemist world. And then he just wrote a trilogy in a new world called the Firemane saga. And come this August, he is releasing a new book called a darkness returns. And he is combining the Firemane saga's world with the rift war saga's world. And they're bringing back some of the characters from Midchemia. And I am stoked. So I just got home tonight with the first book of the Fireman Saga. Have to read those before August, but I got seven months. So it's gonna it's so doable. But I'm really looking forward to that. I'm stoked to read some 2024 Raymond E. Feist. I'll read that too, for sure. I'm I'm excited to read that. That's gonna be awesome. And then I guess since you mentioned it. December 6th, Stormlight Archive Book 5 is supposed to drop. I think it's December 6th. Early December, the pre-order is actually up. He has a name for it. I think it was called Knights of Wind and Truth. Yeah, Knights of Wind. Yeah, Knights of Wind and Truth. Yep, yep. I'm stoked for that. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else that we, we were talking about how it was a big year for fantasy. Maybe it was just those two books. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's what I'm looking forward to. I'm trying to think if there's anything else. I have like a little list. There was another book. What else was on it? Um, oh, I kind of want to read the Ichabod by J.K. Rowling. It was oh, like yeah. her book after she finished Harry Potter. I, Jackie and I read the first three chapters of it um, out loud before bed a couple times, and it was it seemed really. It was more like in tone close to like the Princess Bride um kind of like it seemed like a fun little book so i might read that yeah i don't know that's a good question i'm sure there's more that i'm forgetting some graphic novels that i'm will probably pick up some i'm kind of off that kick for now um there's a illustrated compilation of the entire Earthsea series oh. by Ursula Le Guin. it's this giant book all illustrated i think it has all five books and I am looking forward to checking that out from the library and devouring it because that's a great, she's a great writer. Yes. Very um, forward. Like she was bringing in themes and discussions and like race stuff um, at a time when that was not a conversation, but she, she did it in a way that wasn't like, I'm pushing this agenda down your throat, but like actually telling a good story where there are those elements. And so I'm, I'm excited to see, to pay attention to that when I read the rest of her books. Yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah. You put me on to a wizard in earth. Did you read that in 2023 or is that 2022? I was 2022. 2022. That makes sense. Yeah. I read it after you and I thought it was really good. I've been wanting to read, um, the rest of it, I've heard really good things about uh, the tombs of Atuan or whatever the second one's called. Yeah. Also, like, I am still debating whether I should read the rest of uh, Song of Fire and Ice, like the Game of Thrones series. I read Game of Thrones, enjoyed it, knew that it was not, that it was just going to keep going downhill in terms of like what happens to the characters. I've never seen the show, um, except for the first episode. Um, but and I owned all the books. I got them all for like a dollar or two dollars at the thrift store. 
And then I was like purging books and I got rid of all of them. I was like, I don't think I'm ever going to sit down and read this whole series, especially because book six and seven are not finished yet. Um, and then I'm just like, oh man, should I though? Because I've heard really good things about the third one being like one of the best. Some people say it's like one of the best fantasy books of all time, but I don't know. I don't think I'm going to do it. Now that you mentioned that, I want to just share a caveat for all of our listeners. If you decide to read Name of the Wind, there's only two books in the three book series that have been written, and it's been quite a number of years since book two was written. So it is a little disappointing to read both books and have to wait maybe indefinitely for the third book. But I will, having said that, book one is at least worth reading. So just wanted to share that so that y'all don't get mad at us when you read it and have to wait. It is a point of contention among fantasy fans. Yeah. Um, No, man, this was awesome. I appreciate you coming on and talking about the books for the year. And for everybody listening too, Andrew is working on um, a lot. Him and I are both working on like a, a big stack of creative work, mostly books and stuff. Andrew's working on a poem collection that is, uh, pretty much done right and then yeah, we're, yeah, we're um, some final graphic design stuff and should be should be out by the end of february Yep, and then uh that novella a novella um that's that i'm really i'm really excited for for all of it i'm super excited for this novella um and then some novels um in the same world as the novel that i'm working on and uh yeah so um andrew will be you'll be back on the podcast when that stuff starts dropping and we'll have some conversations about it. But yeah, man, this was awesome. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening everybody. It's fun to talk about the books that we've read and I hope that uh, I'll have many more books to talk about next year. Yes. Oh, for sure. Yeah.